This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. It's a real pleasure to be here, and um, I'll just I'll just continue in this kind of announcement vein for a moment. Um, so I'm a bit of a Dharma-free agent. I don't have like a a specific home sangha, so I kind of I kind of visit different sitting groups and so forth. So um, part of, part of that means if you wanna if you wanna find me, you kind of have to look. <laughs> So, um, so I brought some materials about my teaching, some my teaching schedule, uh, an email sign-up list. If if you enjoy the way that I understand and share the Dhamma tonight, feel free to add your email address to my list, and I send out one email a month or so with an article I've written or a link to um, a Dharma talk or a guided meditation, things like that. And I'd be very happy to stay in touch. So uh, I'm curious, how many people have been here for um, most of the talks in this series? Raise your hand. Okay, so some. how many people were here last week for Sean's talk? Okay, more. And, and is there anyone who is just dropping in tonight that you haven't been to any of the talks in this series? Okay, so a few people too. Okay, great. So, so the theme for this series, and I have the honor of giving... Uh, one of the last talks has been the seven factors of awakening, uh, which are these qualities that the Buddha pointed out uh, that are essential to develop um, not only on the path, but which when when they're well developed and in balance culminate in an experience of letting go that's so deep and profound that it transforms the mind stream that it actually uproots some of the underlying tendencies that lead us to struggle and suffer in our lives. Uh, in the early texts, the, they're said to be so powerful and, and, and beautiful that when the Buddha was sick, he would ask his attendant, Ananda, to chant them to him, just to hear them chanted. So tonight I want to talk about the last of these seven factors, and I'll mention all seven of them in a moment for those who haven't maybe been to all of the sessions. Um, This uh, last quality is equanimity, which is a a kind of steadiness or balance and evenness of mind, which is what I was pointing to in the guided meditation. And this quality of equanimity is one that develops slowly a long time alongside all of the other qualities, uh, the other spiritual uh, factors of awakening. So the first of the factors of awakening, as many of you know, is mindfulness. So uh, this capacity to be aware of experience in an intimate and unbiased way. And when we're mindful, this is the beginning of all of the seven factors of awakening. When we're mindful, it starts to reveal some of the habits of our mind, our mind's way of reacting to the pleasant and unpleasant experiences we have. 
And just in that seeing of our reactivity, we're already starting to build some equanimity as we start to see that tendency to push and pull against experience. From mindfulness, the list goes on to three factors uh, that energize the mind, that bring vitality into the heart and mind. And the first of these is uh, Dhamma Vijaya, uh, investigation, which is um, a quality of exploring experience closely in a non-conceptual way. So looking closely in a really detailed way at what's happening. And again, here with investigation, we're starting to become aware of the underlying mechanisms of reactivity in the mind, seeing how the mind snags on this aspect of experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and how the mind starts to react also to the perceptions that arise the meanings that we create. So that these, these two of feeling tone and perception are present in any moment of sense contact. And with investigation, we start to observe this process. And that too begins to result in some ripening of equanimity, some amount of letting go or easing off of that process. From there, uh, we begin to develop uh, uh, energy, sometimes called uh, courageous energy or heroic energy, virya, uh, which is the ability to apply the mind with some vigor and consistency, to have some enthusiasm for the practice itself. And the, this, this mix of mindfulness, investigation, and energy um, eventually leads to um, a deep and joyful kind of interest called piti or rapture. Um, one of my teachers likes to refer to it as a deep delight in experience. And this is when the mind starts to um, inhabit experience from the inside. So it's no longer like we're looking at something or observing something from the outside but we enter into it fully and there's a kind of joyfulness and uplifted sense that comes from being that uh, seamlessly connected to each moment of experience. The next three factors balance the, this, this series of three energizing factors. The next three are, are calming or tranquilizing factors. So this kind of um, uplifted, joyful intimacy with experience, eventually it pulls us so deeply into the experience that the mind settles into tranquility and calm. And so this movement from rapture and delight to calm is a movement towards equanimity. It's a movement from... Um, a more kind of charged up pleasure of piti or rapture to uh, a more subtle and balanced pleasure of tranquility and calm. From that sense of tranquility, the mind begins to gather and collect in what's known as samadhi, stability or steadiness of mind. 
And this is what Sean was speaking about last week, this, uh, this state of wholeness that comes from a state of deep ease and well-being, a, a, a balanced relaxation rather than a striving or a forcing or a tightening. And Sean spoke a lot about uh, working with our nervous system process and supporting uh, this um, state of natural, relaxed awareness when we can uh, come out of our habitual fight-flight-freeze mechanisms that are so stimulated by most of our activities in, in society today. From samadhi, when the mind is calm, stable, it has enough energy and aware, emerges a state of equipoise and balance that's known as equanimity. And this is the last of these stabilizing or tranquilizing factors of awakening. So the word in Pali for this factor in mind is upeka. And that word can mean two different things. It can mean neutral, just like in the middle, not pleasant, not unpleasant, not agreeable or disagreeable, just neutral. Or it can mean this evenness or, or balance, a kind of impartiality in the mind. And it's this latter meaning uh, that's referred to when talking about the seventh factor of awakening. It's interesting, this quality of upeka appears in the teachings in early Buddhism in a number of different places. So it shows up in the four Brahma Viharas, these four sublime uh, states of mind, uh, these states of empathic connection that we can cultivate, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It shows up in the list of the ten paramis, the ten perfections. There, too, it's the last of the ten perfections, starting with generosity, ethics, renunciation, including truthfulness and patience and energy and wisdom, culminating in equanimity. And here, too, in the seven factors of awakening, it's the last one. You look at the the map that's provided in certain uh, teachings of Buddhism of the stages of insight. There's a stage of insight known as sankara upekka, equanimity with regard to all formations. It's one of the final stages. So you're getting the sense? So this quality is considered a very high state of development. It's regarded as one of the... um, one of the highest attainments in Buddhism. And I think this in and of itself is an interesting teaching, that the highest kind of attainment isn't bliss or ecstasy. It's balance. It's non-reactivity. One of my teachers likes to say, um, the rarest human experience isn't bliss, it's contentment. And again, that's pointing to this quality of evenness, of steadiness. Sometimes it's referred to as holy equanimity because the understanding is that this particular state of balance is a foretaste of nibbana, of awakening. 
And it's said to be a glimpse into the mind of a fully awakened one. That the mind of an awakened one abides in this state of what I like to call dynamic equilibrium, an equipoise. And when you consider the kind of ordinary roller coaster of most of our lives, the ups and the downs and the excitement and the dejection and the emotions that we go through, uh, and particularly the way um, charged emotional experiences or feelings of success or failure, when they arrive, have this mystique that they seem like it's going to last forever. Do you know that, that one, right? Like when we feel good, everything's going well, we're healthy, you know, our relationship's in a good state, or we're single and happy about that, and the car's working, and it's like, you know, like the bills are getting paid. It's like, hey, everything's great, and it's just going to keep on going this way forever. It seems that way, right? And when the tables turn, and it's, it's the opposite, everything looks like it's just going to keep going that way. So when we consider the way our minds ordinarily function and relate to the changeable conditions of our life, we get a sense that this quality of equanimity takes some doing and that it's, it's pretty different than our habit, than our normal way of relating. There's a famous poem in the Zen tradition, uh, the... Um, poem from the third Zen patriarch that begins with a line, the great way is not difficult for those who cease to cherish their preferences. Sometimes it's translated for those who have no preferences. I prefer this translation for those who cease to cherish their preferences because the reality is that we do have preferences. But as we practice and come to study them more closely, we see that where the suffering comes is from being attached to our preferences, needing things to be a certain way. So I just had two wisdom teeth taken out last week. So for the last week, whenever the pain medication wears off, there's some unpleasant sensations, right? Sometimes fairly strong. So I clearly have a preference to not experience pain, right? That's, that's hardwired in our biology. Now, had I not been practicing for two decades, I might get kind of bent out of shape about that, either worried about, oh, no, is it healing and what's going on, and, or just grumpy and irritated and snappy, right? But it's just like, It's just an unpleasant sensation. Ceasing to cherish the preference. It's there. I'd rather not feel that kind of dull, aching, throbbing sensation in my jaw. But I don't need it to be otherwise. So this ceasing to cherish our preferences is about opening up beyond the narrow confines of our preferences for what's comfortable. There's another saying that comes from uh, the Taoist tradition. It says, you forget your feet when your shoes are comfortable. You forget your waist 
when your belt is comfortable. But who knows the comfort of forgetting what is comfortable? So again, pointing at this ceasing to cherish, letting go of the, this um, narrow needing it to be a certain way. If we're only free when we're comfortable, when things are going our way, what kind of freedom is that? When, um, when I was in my 20s, I had the good fortune of uh, getting to travel to India a couple of times and do some practice there. And on one trip, I uh, took some time off and, and just, just toured around and traveled some. And I was, um, I think it was in Rajasthan, which is a state to the west of India, bordering Pakistan. Some very beautiful cities there, uh, a lot of desert and sandstone buildings. And one evening I had um, hiked up to the top of this little uh, hill where there was some ruins and the sun was setting. It was very beautiful because the the color, the light from the sun was um, lighting up all of the sandstone buildings. And I was just there by myself, uh, leaning against a wall, just enjoying the sunset, watching the city. And then um, a small group of tourists kind of wandered up onto the the site there at the top of the hill, chatting and talking. And um, this was pretty early in my practice. And one of the tourists noticed me and this woman, and she kind of came over and chuckled and said to me, you know, sorry to disturb your peace. And without even really thinking about it, I just, I said to her, I said, if it can be disturbed, what kind of peace is it? So this is, this is, this is pointing at that quality of equanimity, this balance that's not tossed around by the changing conditions of our life. So equanimity sees and feels the whole range of human experience, the joy and the sorrow, the ups and downs, and stays steady, stays balanced. Sometimes it's compared to a mountain, like this unshakable quality in the face of wind and rain and storms, a mountain is just steady. Sometimes it's compared to um, an acrobat on a tightrope. You get that sense of the dynamic nature of equanimity, always adjusting, continually in balance. Equanimity isn't about not feeling anything. It doesn't mean that we numb out, that we don't feel pleasure or pain, or that everything becomes kind of this bland, gray, neutral blob. (laughs) It means that we're not shaken or overwhelmed by experience. It actually gives us the space to feel what's happening without getting spun out. The good, the bad, the pleasant, the unpleasant, without drowning in it or getting lost in the reactivity, the push, the pull. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're calm all of the time. It means that we stay centered in the midst of whatever's happening 
without getting tossed around. It doesn't mean being indifferent or apathetic. This is one of the most common misunderstandings of equanimity, that it means not caring. Well, I'm, I'm equanimous. You know, I don't, I don't care. I don't have any preferences. That's cutting off. It's sometimes referred to as stupid equanimity. <laughs> because it's an escape. Indifference is about not wanting to feel. It's about cutting off. Equanimity is rooted in the, se- in the other of the seven factors of awakening, in mindfulness and investigation, in energy, in joy, in calm, in concentration. It's rooted in this, this capacity to be with experience in a, whole, in, a, in a wholeheartedly embodied and intimate way. This is a quote from um, uh, Ajahn Sachito, who's a teacher and elder in the Thai forest tradition. He says, apathy has a dulling quality to it, an ignorance, a shrug. There's no shrug in equanimity. It has clarity, sensitivity, and stability, a wise space. The last common misunderstanding about equanimity is that it means uh, not, not acting, not speaking up, being passive or being a doormat or not caring. It just means not being exhausted by the push and pull of our attempts to control experience. So it means not reacting out of our unconscious compulsion. So equanimity actually gives us the space to act with wisdom, to to make a clear choice about acting rather than reacting habitually. One of the metaphors, another metaphor that's used for equanimity is the metaphor of space. So the word itself, upeka, one of the etymologies, uh, gives a sense of looking on. So there's a sense of perspective and space. There's one sutta where the Buddha advises his son Rahula. He says, make your meditation like space. And if you try to throw paint on space, it's unaffected. So there's that sense of having a very wide open mind that nothing can stain it. The space remains unaffected. Whatever passes through it, we don't get caught up in those, those experiences. So what's interesting and kind of unique about equanimity in relation to the other of the seven factors of awakening is that it's not so much something you can do. You can't do equanimity. It's like a, a, f- a piece of fruit on a tree. It just takes time to ripen. It develops slowly through our practice, moment by moment, day by day, year by year. That said, there are perspectives or ways that we can support the conditions for equanimity to grow. Just like if you have fruit trees, you can make sure they have enough water and enough fertilizer and that they're getting the right amount of light. You can't speed up the 
the ripening of that fruit, but you can make sure that that tree has what it needs. So one of the things that supports the development of equanimity is observing our attachment to preferences, actually studying our reactivity and learning to handle it. Because remember, equanimity is this balance. It's that that capacity of non-reactivity. So if you think about being balanced, we learn to balance by being out of balance. If you've ever learned to ride a bike or walked on a balance beam, you know, you find balance by finding by feeling what's out of balance. So we learn equanimity by observing when we don't have equanimity. And that's counterintuitive. That's one of the conditions for the growth of equanimity is actually noticing when we are reactive and beginning to study those places. So noticing when there's pleasant experience, how do we tend to relate? Notice when pleasure, whether it's sensory pleasure, eating ice cream or uh, tasting some nice food or a pleasant sensation on the body, or mental pleasure, when there's some meaning or idea or perception or praise that comes our way. Notice when that pleasantness moves from the simple enjoyment of the pleasure to wanting it to last or wanting more, to craving and grasping and trying to figure out how to get more, sometimes addiction, or how pleasant can move into manipulation, angling to get the most, or wanting to control things to get more. All of these experiences that arise out of the simple fact of something being pleasant. We don't like to look at that. We just want more, <laughs> right? But that's, that's not equanimity. That's reactivity. That's, that's a kind of peace that's dependent on conditions. Which, as we know from experience, is pretty unreliable. When things are unpleasant, to notice the tendency to move away, to, be, to grow irritated or annoyed or frustrated, or to move into blame or anger, to make it someone's fault, to try to get away from it, to avoid it, to shrink. So noticing these tendencies when there's an unpleasant experience and when there's neutral experiences, noticing how we check out, how we get bored or how we just get confused, kind of zone out or don't care. We move into indifference, apathy, we dissociate. So the... uh, the pervasiveness of technology is a very interesting place to study our relationship with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So if you notice, when you reach for your phone, look and see what's happening in the mind before you reach. Is there a moment of boredom? A moment of something neutral? And rather than being able to stay present and just observe that experience, perhaps even begin to appreciate the quality of evenness, of not being stimulated, the mind goes to looking for something pleasant to be stimulated. Or when you're engaged online, 
noticing the hits of pleasure and displeasure, depending on what, what's popping up. So we can train our mind to study this point of contact where um, an object of awareness meets the mind, meets the heart-mind. So whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought or meaning or, or emotion, noticing that point of contact and noticing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that quality and how the mind relates. And as we study that more and more, we get less fixated on the objects of awareness, on what it is we're experiencing, and more interested in the quality of our mind, more interested in what is this doing to the mind? What, what would it be like to be balanced and non-reactive? And we begin to sense the possibility of this peace of equanimity, of a non-reactive stability in the mind. Just kind of referencing what Sean was talking about last week, you know, the, the pace of change that we're all living through today is counter to this quality of equanimity like human the human organism was not designed to experience change at the pace with which it's happening in society today you know or the kinds of the continual level of uh, demand for attention and action that most of modern society uh, puts on our organism is not the kind of environment or ecosystem in which this system evolved. We evolved in a system that was at a much slower pace where there were um, periods of lots of downtime, more repetitive and rhythmic activity where we knew everyone in our village or clan. And so in looking at the development of equanimity, it's important to become aware of the context of our society and the structures and institutions within which we live that um, create a whole milieu that's counter to a balanced, well-regulated nervous system. And so looking at what are the things that we each can do in our own life to create and support conditions where we can start to deactivate and come out of this state of overwhelm. Or uh, uh, one teacher likes to refer to it as low-grade panic. <laughs> like, you know, like everyone walking around over-caffeinated in this state of sympathetic arousal, of like this low-grade panic, you know. So studying that reactivity. And this takes a real radical willingness to feel. We have to be willing to feel the discomfort of reactivity to develop equanimity and move beyond the reactivity. So I like to say that equanimity grows at the edge of our reactivity. So we learn to bring our awareness right to that space of wanting or not wanting, resistance, 
avoidance, control. We have to find the right relationship with it. We step back, we get space, then we come closer, we become intimate, and keep the mind right there at the edge, right at at the point where we can feel the reactivity, but we're not overwhelmed by it. We're not in it, but we're not disconnecting from it. And right there at that edge, where there's some sense of rootedness and awareness, that's where equanimity grows, being aware of the reactivity. And by learning to keep the heart open through all of the ups and the downs and the joys and the sorrows, that fruit of equanimity ripens, exposing it again and again to the reactivity. And when it sees the suffering, the pain inherent in grabbing on and trying to control, it starts to soften and let go. The other important aspect in the development of equanimity is wisdom. And so one of the ways that equanimity is talked about and understood is as balance that's born of wisdom. So it's a kind of steadiness and impartiality that comes from understanding deeply the nature of this life. We've been through enough, both in, in the course of our life, but also in the more refined moment-to-moment awareness that we understand in our bones that life is just a series of changes. It goes up and it comes down. We're happy and we're sad. There's joy and there's sorrow. And so in the Buddhist teachings, the the way of talking about this is these eight conditions called the worldly winds that blow over the earth, that just, they blow through each of our lives from the moment we're born until the moment we die. There's pleasure and pain. There's gain and loss. There's fame and disrepute. There's praise and blame. And there's these, just these polarities that come and go. So ordinarily we get caught up in them, right? We want, the, we want the pleasure, the gain, the fame, and the praise, and we try to avoid the other side. We get elated when things are going our way. We get dejected when they're not. So these conditions tend to throw us off balance, the more we study that, the more we observe that, we see how that, that reacting to them, that getting caught up in them, creates even more problems. We get entangled, and it's kind of like this hall of mirrors of more and more reactivity. And we can spend our whole life chasing, chasing after the good ones and trying to get away from the unpleasant ones. So this wisdom is actually understanding that this is just the nature of things. It's just an oscillation. It's it's night and day. It's in-breath and out-breath. And we start to recognize that only wanting praise and never wanting blame is equivalent to only wanting to breathe in. Right? Like when I put it that way, it's like, well, that's not really possible right? But do, are we still deluded in thinking that we can have only success and no failure, that we can have only pleasure and no pain, that it'll just keep getting better and better, 
And then finally, poof, this like magical explosion of bliss and we vanish into the rainbow body or something. It's not the way it works. That's, that's not life. You know? So we know this intellectually, but we can actually begin to, to really get this deeply in ourselves such that when things changed, we're not surprised. We're not shocked. We don't experience that sense of being shaken. There's the, there's, there's the understanding, the expectation, this is the way it is. So these are conditions. They're not fixed. I had another moment of, of um, recognizing equanimity in my practice when I was in England uh, training at one of the monasteries. And I've had a number of health challenges throughout my adult life. Um, one of them is a digestive condition. It means I have to be very careful about what I eat. And in the monasteries, uh, it's hard to pick and choose what you eat. It's just the food that's offered you, you take. So uh, one, of the, one of the guests who knew about my kind of dietary restrictions was asking me one afternoon. He, he was saying, you know, if you don't mind my asking, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what, what is, what's your affliction? This is in England, so it's a common word to use. We might not use that language here, but you know, what's your affliction? Here we might say, what's your illness or what's your sickness or something like that, right? What's your affliction? And again, just like that moment on the top of that hill in Rajasthan, I paused. I was just kind of struck by what he said. I said, you know, I don't experience it that way. I experience it as a condition. Now, I would obviously much rather be healthy than have this particular condition. So I had a preference, but I ceased cherishing it. So there's not that sense of like it needs to be this way. This is just a condition. Sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way. We also start to understand the more we practice and study experience that we're not in control. That the idea that we are the center of the universe, <laughs> which is somehow designed to meet our preferences and make us happy, is a fiction. <laughs> and again, we know this intellectually, but do we operate from that understanding, right? when things don't work out the way we had intended? Do we blame ourselves? Or do we recognize, oh yeah, it's not in my hands, it's not up to me. We don't control so many factors that go into determining the outcome of any situation. So when we understand the nature of things, these changing conditions, and that we're ultimately not in control, when we experience the inevitable ups and downs and changes in life, we can allow them to flow through our awareness without getting caught up, without snagging on them, and the mind stays balanced. Doesn't mean we don't act. It doesn't mean we can't uh, pursue a goal. We show up, we do our best, and we let things take their course. It means that we can have a sense of peacefulness 
whatever the results are. One of the images that's used to point to this this wisdom aspect of equanimity is like a grandparent watching a young child play. And if that young child's toy were to break and the child sort of, you know, starts crying, the grandparent can comfort the child. It's going to be okay, you know. Toys break. It's all right. And the grandparent has been through so much and seen so much that they understand, you know, we lose things, we experience pain, things don't go our way, and it's okay. It, it just changes and you'll get through it. So this, this quality of equanimity brings a peacefulness, a coolness to the mind that's not about manipulating experience. Nothing in the outside world actually changes. But the mind is quiet and still because it's no longer trying to control things. It's no longer fighting against the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral. So when the mind is balanced, when these these seven factors of awakening are present, awareness, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyful interest, tranquility, steadiness, and equanimity. When all of these factors come into balance together, the mind can let go and fall into a different state. Uh, It's called the deathless or the unconditioned state. It's like if you imagine a big bowl and you take a marble and drop that marble and it starts moving in the bowl, rolling up and down the sides. Okay, And with equanimity, we stop trying to control it. We stop pushing it and pulling it. And slowly, as the, as the awakening factors come into balance, that marble comes to rest, and it falls, it drops. It, the mind drops in to, to understanding its own nature, experiencing it directly. This is what's known as uh, the unshakable release of the heart. And this is different than the kind of relief we experience in life of having things go our way or getting what we want, or even the temporary relief of concentration or calm. This is a release. The mind is set free from its entanglement with sensory experience. Sometimes it's referred to as freedom from the known. So freedom from knowing anything. It's beyond what we can experience with the mind, with the thinking mind. So I could go on. I would love to. (laughs) Um, The last thing I'll say is that um, As beautiful and sublime as these qualities are, they're not distant. 
They're not something that are far off that we can only cultivate or experience on a six-month retreat. These are qualities that we can cultivate and experience directly in our own day-to-day life, all seven of the factors of awakening. And that they don't happen sequentially. We can be working on one. We can be working on several of them at the same time. And they come from from this practice, from this beautiful practice of bringing awareness and curiosity and investigation to our moment-to-moment experience in formal meditation and in our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.